0: So today, we are having Andrew and Nikki Wong sharing. And uh, those of you that have been here for a while, you will recognize them. They left about nine months or almost a year? Almost a year ago. Almost a year ago. um, They were sent out to do awesome work in Los Angeles, California, the land where I was born. So I'm glad somebody went there to redeem it. And so um, they were in town, and we just so wanted them to have an opportunity to share with us, give us an update, what God's doing and what what they're sensing the Father doing in and through them. And I'm sure they have a word for us, too. I'm not surprised. Anyway, so uh, for those of you that don't know them, you're in for a treat. So this is Andrew and Nikki. So you guys are going
1: to use this or that? I think we're going to use this. Okay. Yeah. so good to be with you all uh, today, and as Claire said, my name is Andrew, this is my wife Nikki, and um, it's just good to be here at the Vineyard with you all. We were here for a couple of years, and it was just a very healing and formative time for us, and then we were blessed and sent out to pursue ministry in South LA with uh, servant partners. And so we'll be sharing a little bit about our ministries today, and um, then we'll be speaking just some of on the reflections God has given us from our time you can go to the next slide for us. Thank you, sir. Um, And then also, at the end of the service, there'll be a time of prayer for us. If you'd like to connect with us, get our newsletters, things like that, we'd be happy to stay in touch. And
0: And Alice is passing around index cards and a photo of us with our contact information. And so uh, there are a number of ways you can connect with us. You can write your name and your email address on that index card and pass it back to us and we'll add you to the newsletter. Uh, to save a step for you, and if you have any questions that come up while we speak, feel free to write a question on that index card, and we'll get back to you on that. So, yeah,
1: All right, you can go to the next slide for us. Thank you. So uh, Nikki and I are with a group called Servant Partners and Servant Partners is a missions organization that is focused on planting churches in urban poor communities around the world. So we are in about 13 countries around the world, including the United States. And we have a vision for planting churches in urban poor communities. So uh, this has been the urban century of our world. Um, The world is now much more urban than it is rural and it will increasingly be so. Um, And as that urban growth comes, Uh, Most folks that end up moving to cities and relocating, um, they face a life of poverty and hardship when they relocate. And so Servant Partners has a vision of planting churches that holistically proclaim the gospel and transform urban poor communities. We're in one of their training programs, and so we're spending two years in South Los Angeles. We're a part of a local church plant there called Church of the Redeemer or Iglesia del Redentor uh, for our Spanish-speaking brothers and sisters here. Um, We meet twice a week as interns, we study scripture, uh, grow in different aspects of urban ministry, Um, and that's a lot of what we've been doing.
0: All right, well, now I'm going to be sharing about um, what I've been up to in South L.A. Uh, So for my job and ministry in the neighborhood, um, I work with our church, Church of the Redeemers, um, community development corporation called Redeemer Community Partnership. We really like long name, so I'm just gonna call it RCP for short. Um, so I serve as the lead community organizer for RCP, and in this role, I help neighbors work together to create uh, healthy changes to our community. And the need that I've spent uh, most of my time in my work around is an irresponsible oil drilling site that's right in our neighborhood. Um, since 1965, companies have drilled for oil right in our neighborhood. And it's really dangerous as it takes place only 10 feet from homes. Um, You can see in this picture, the red arrow points out to this dinky little cinder block wall. That's the only thing that separates this industrial site from the residential homes next door. Um, There's terrible noise produced from the site, noxious fumes, and to conduct this work, the company will pump tens of thousands of toxic chemicals and acid into the ground to loosen the rock and release additional hydrocarbons. And um, I was a chemistry major in college and worked in the lab, and so when I read the report of all the chemicals they used, I was like... That's not okay. (laughs) Um, After one of these acidizing events, plants at the northwest corner of the site simultaneously died the next day. I Have a picture of that. Oh, and the same slide. Yeah, on the top right. Um, And our neighbors, many of whom are already struggling to simply provide for their families, um, feel really powerless um, in the face of this multi-billion dollar oil company that operates with very little regard for the surrounding neighbors. Um, So my work around the site has been um, both to engage the community in understanding um, and learning about the site um, and also to hold um, the city and government agencies responsible to their duty to protect and serve the people they're supposed to represent. Um, I'm really thankful to be working with my boss, um, Richard, in this effort. He's one of the founding members of RCP and one of the first people to move into South L.A. Um, during after the social earthquake um, in L.A. or the so-called L.A. riots in the 90s. Um, his reputation and experience has um, really been a gift to me. Because of his connections, I've been able to sit in meetings with city council members, uh, go to regulatory agency board meetings, uh, which I have another one coming up in two weeks. And uh, and it's been really cool to sit in these meetings and be an advocate um, for our community and bring the stories of our neighbors to the ears of those in power. Um, we've run into a lot of opposition, um, understandably, but God has also paved the way for really good partnerships. For example, we recently reelected a new council member for our district who has been supportive of our efforts, which was not the case for the past 12 years. Um, And so while the political and policy side of things sound pretty cool and exciting, I I have to say I really enjoy the community level of my job much more. Um, You can change the slide. So part of what I do is I go door to door meeting neighbors and hearing their stories and experiences, especially the neighbors who live right across the street from the site. Um, And there's once I met um, an older African-American woman. Um, I'll call her Miss Q. And this is a view from I was standing on her front porch looking at the site. And so as we stood in her yard looking over at this 50 foot workover rig piercing into the sky, we talked in between loud banging noises and the screeching sound of pipes driving into the ground. I asked her, what was it like? What's it like living next to this site? And she responded, oh, I've gotten used to it. There's nothing really I can do about it. She's lived in this house since the 70s, and the the drill site's been there for as long as she's lived there. She told me stories about how she used to attend community meetings, go down to City Hall. Um, there was one time she even went up to that gate and pounded on it, asking them to stop um, working and making all this noise and emitting all, this fu- all the fumes. Um, and in 2011, she shared how her home and her car was sprayed with oil um, when there was a small accident from the site. She told me, all they care about is money. They don't care about the people who live here. And um, so, yeah, I shared with her some of the work that RCP had been doing in the past two years to rally the community together around this issue. Um, I showed her my pamphlets of information (laughs) and um, I showed her and shared with her some of the research that I had been doing. And as she listened and read the material, um, I saw hope return to her eyes. She got excited about the possibility of the community's collective voice to do something that she felt she could not do on her own. And um, she told me, let me know when y'all plan something. Count me in. Um, you can change the slide. So maybe you're wondering, what does community organizing have to do with ministry? And I think that's a good question. Um, as I've reflected on uh, the verses um, of Isaiah 61. Um, I think it really paints a good picture for why this matters to God. Um, The scripture is about God's restoration that he wants to do through his people. Um, Isaiah 61.4 says, they shall build up the ancient ruins. They shall raise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. Our neighborhood is just like the city described here. Um, For generations, it has been devastated by poverty and injustice. Andrew will kind of expand on that a little more in his talk. Um, Many people feel stuck and abandoned and have lost hope for any good to come. But God is calling his church to work, to rebuild uh, the neighborhood. The spiritual health of our neighborhood is tied to the environmental health as well, Um, right? People can't thrive and live an abundant life of the kingdom if they are physically sick because of injustice. Um, God wants to heal their souls, their families, their bodies, and their environment, Um, and that's the power of the gospel because God cares about every aspect of our being. Um, And one of the ways I have seen community organizing uh, really restore dignity back to um, our marginalized community is um, just making space for their voices to be heard. So I think of um, Javier, who works uh, six days a week, sometimes seven if he needs to, providing for his two daughters, one of which has recently developed asthma. Um, Or Jenny, who's a single mother of two with another baby on the way. And um, when an NPR reporter was doing a piece on neighborhood oil drilling, I was able to connect them to the reporter and they got to share their concerns and their experiences on public radio. Um, Next slide. And in April, Our neighbors were also um, able to share their voices at a protest. So in mid-April, I received a notification that the company was gonna do an acid job in two days. So the acid job was just like that photo I showed earlier with those trucks coming in with the tens of thousands of gallons of chemicals. So on one hand, it was great we got this notification, but it also meant I had two days to plan a protest. And so after a lot of phone calls, going door to door, and two really long nights, Uh, We got about 30 community members to come out, um, including Ms. Q, um, to come out and march to the drilling site and share their experiences of living next to um, this site with the the fumes, the noises, the fears and uncertainties um, that came with that. And it was a really amazing demonstration of um, unity and community action. And um, the demonstration got featured on all the major news um, networks that day, um, including the L.A. Times. So pretty successful. Um, additionally, um, a film student from the University of California, which is right near our neighborhood. Um, he's, he was also an inter student. He um, opted to uh, do his senior film project on RCP and our work around the oil drilling site. And um, he produced a 25 minute documentary on us. Um, If you're not already on our mailing list, please sign up, and that's kind of where I'm going to share the public link for everyone to watch. But for this morning, I can show you guys the trailer of that documentary. So next slide. Let's hope this works.
1: One of the drilling sites is along Jefferson Boulevard between Vermont and Normandy. Most of chemicals being used.
0: Oil spill had a lot of accidents. When I, when they drilling, the noise the noise is big noise. Yes, we are powerless against big companies. The the chemicals they use they are known air toxins. If you went by, you wouldn't necessarily know that there's anything there, um, but what's inside? There's just a spider's web of wells that go out underneath the entire community. Yeah, it's been operating in this neighborhood for decades, and an environmental impact report has never been done on it. I did this yesterday, and there's the chemical storage tanks, the produced water tanks...
1: Well, we're up against a very large adversary. Freeport McMoran Oil & Gas is a multi-billion dollar oil company. We're going to labor relentlessly until we achieve our, our goal.
0: through my work as a community organizer, I've seen how God wants to give dignity back to our neighbors and to make their community a healthy place that reflects God's um, kingdom. Um, I've also come to really appreciate the value of living where the need is. Um, So the change I'm working for and um, that our church, um, Church of the Redeemer and RCP is working for, is not just this far off community, um, it's our community, it's my neighborhood. The site lives across the street from the laundromat I go to every other week. Um, Andrew and I walk by it every Sunday on our way to church. Um, We have friends who live in an apartment that literally looks into the site. Um, There's an elementary school two blocks away. The after-school program that RCP runs is a block away. Um, I know the suburban neighborhood that I grew up in would have never tolerated an oil drilling site next to homes. So why should it be allowed here in South L.A. Um, and cause that burden on the people living there? Uh, members of our church and all the staff um, that work for RCP, we all live in the neighborhood because we've chosen to take on the burdens that our neighbors face. Um, it's personal. It's personal. And there's a lot of credibility, too, and a lot of weight when you can go into a city hall public hearing and say, I want this oil site gone because I live four blocks away from it, and it's harming my community. Um, It's so valuable that we join in the challenges of our neighbors so that we can really experience the extent of the deep devastation that the community has experienced, um, therefore to partner with them in a deeper way to renew the community. Um, So it's been really encouraging to me that Jesus cares about um, places that are long devastated, whether it's um, my neighborhood or hurt I've experienced in my life that seems um, hopeless. I think the sense of hope Jesus has given me to transform this neighborhood has given me hope in other areas of my life where it's felt harder to have hope for. Um, It's really good news that Jesus is the ultimate rebuilder and that he... um, But he also invites his church to be a part of this rebuilding and renewing process. Um, And as we choose to be a part of this process he's doing, we get to see his promises fulfilled. We get to experience strength and courage as we work alongside him um, in the things that he's already doing. So it's been a really good gift um, to me to work for RCP in South L.A. this past year. And um, yeah, my prayer for you guys is that you will also be given eyes to see where God might be inviting you to see, um, be a part of renewing Places Long Devastated. Um, So yeah, thanks for, for listening, and I'll invite Andrew up.
1: Well, so good to just have some time to share with you all what God is doing. And as Nikki shared, our hope is not just that you would hear sort of what God is doing in West Adams, that's our neighborhood in South Los Angeles, but that you would start to catch a vision. What is God doing in San Antonio? Um, And how could you be a part of that? Um, The message that I have for you today, I, I titled it Suffering, Comforted That We May Comfort. And the scripture comes from 2 Corinthians 1. This is the word of God. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all of our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves receive from God. For just as we share abundantly in the sufferings of Christ, so also our comfort abounds through Christ. Paul begins this letter to the church in Corinth with words of praise. He does this frequently in his letters, doesn't he? And in this letter, uh, he calls God, not just any God, but the God most fully revealed by Jesus, the God of Israel. He calls that God the father of compassion and the God of all comfort. Throughout this letter, Paul will actually talk a great deal about suffering. He'll talk about suffering in his own life and he'll talk about suffering in the life of the church But it's important to notice here that he begins with praise. From the outset, we see that Paul has no problem praising God, praising God's goodness and his comfort, and still acknowledging the troubles and the suffering of the church and his own life. These experiences are not mutually exclusive. This year in Los Angeles, I've wrestled, and Nikki and I have wrestled much with this tension ourselves. How is it that we can join with Paul in praise of God even while our neighborhood suffers such injustice? How is it that we can join in praise of God even while we have hardship in our own lives? As I've prepared this message more than once, I've wanted to find another scripture and just write a new message altogether. I've said, don't people have enough suffering in their lives without me talking about it? Um, But I think that desire to stay away from suffering and leave it unspoken and ignored is exactly why God would have us talk about it today. In this scripture, we see three perspectives on suffering, and these are the three perspectives that we want to talk through today. Thank you. Um, The first is that suffering is a universal experience in our world. Everybody suffers. Everybody suffers. Second, the Christian response to suffering is found in Jesus. Uniquely, the Christian response to suffering is found in Jesus. And third, because Jesus shares in our sufferings, we're invited to share in the sufferings of others. First, we'll talk about the universality of suffering. Paul reminds the church that suffering is universal. He says in verse 4 that God comforts us, the church, in all of our troubles so that we might comfort those in any trouble. Though we may not want to talk about it, none of us can escape suffering, can we? Some of us, even in this room, have suffered abuse and the disintegration of family. Others of us are battling illnesses and the financial burden that poses. And all of us have or will someday lose a loved one. Despite this universal quality of suffering, the fact that we all suffer, in the United States, there's a belief that suffering can be avoided. It's a story that we tell ourselves. We have a pharmaceutical industry that's marketed itself under the claim that every illness and ailment and the suffering that those things cause can be remedied with our medicines. And so we watch commercials of people living fun, pain-free lives, walking through parks, enjoying time with their families. You've seen these commercials. I know you have. And all while these people experience no suffering, presumably because they took medicine and it took the suffering away. For many of us, our jobs exist as places of suffering, um, that, I, that is part of transitioning into adulthood, is experiencing work and the hardship of work. We feel bored or underappreciated or even downright used at work, don't we? We imagine dream jobs where we do everything we love and nothing we hate, and we are our own bosses. After some time of working, we might begin to long for retirement, where we hope that we'll get to do everything we love for the rest of our lives. The American vision of retirement is a vision of entertainment and recreation. If you ever look at promotional materials for retirement communities or life insurance, you'll see people um, entertaining themselves, recreating, and there's no suffering to be found. (laughs) It's funny. It's obvious now that we say it. But if we pay attention to the subtle stories our culture tells, we discover that the American vision of suffering is a lie, It's that if we are crafty and careful enough, we might be able to avoid suffering altogether. The Christian vision of suffering is quite different, though. In this scripture, Paul praises the Father because he comforts us in all our troubles and suffering and then enables us to comfort others in their troubles and suffering. Suffering and hardship are assumed in the Christian perspective. Now, it's worth saying that this does not mean that the Christian views suffering as something inherently good or something we should pursue. There's nothing unchristian about taking medicines that help us live healthy lives and flourish. So don't go home and say the pastor said, don't take my multivitamin. (laughs) I'm not actually the pastor, so definitely don't say that. (laughs) And of course, there's nothing wrong in looking forward to retirement. Our sister here started retirement last year. And it's been a it just sounds like a beautiful season for her where she's been able to serve more in the church, just do things that she loves, express God's beauty and how he's made her through creativity. (laughs) Amen. That's what she told me this morning. I didn't coach her at all. She said, I need to retire from my retirement. There's some things that she really wants to do, some things God has for her to do. Amen. So there's nothing wrong with looking forward to retirement. But what is contrary to Christianity's vision of suffering, of life, is that suffering can be ultimately bypassed or avoided. Because as Christians, we see the whole creation and all people as being broken by sin and death. Let's rehearse the story of creation together. In the story of creation, in the scriptures, we're told how God makes a very good world. He makes a very good world to be a place of worship and life for his most significant creations, for people, for us. God made people and called us to live in right relationship with him, with one another, and with the whole world around us. He called us to bear his image into the world, to steward the world, to care for it, to order it rightly. But as we look at our own lives and certainly the world around us, we know that that didn't exactly work out. We joined with spiritual powers opposed to God. We became enslaved to those powers and to death. Our relationship to God, to one another, and to the creation became broken, and so suffering emerged. In the past year in Los Angeles, as we've gotten to know some of our neighbors and heard their stories, we've been reminded of our world's brokenness over and over again. I think about our our neighbors and our, our church family from Central America. They invited Nikki and I to have dinner with them a couple of times early on as we had moved to Los Angeles. And over the course of our meals together, um, as we ate something probably similar to like pozole, um, as our meals together progressed, we heard their stories of of how it was that they came from Central America to the U.S. And they had never uh, intended to leave Central America, to leave their home and to come to the U.S., but they were extremely poor. They were in intractable poverty, the kind of poverty that you can't escape, the kind of poverty where there is no job to get. They came to a place where they were so poor that they only had coffee to put in a baby bottle for their son. Their son was dying, and so they made the decision that any parent would make. They said that they would go to the ends of the world to save his life. So they made the decision to make a dangerous journey to La Frontera, to the border. On their journey to the border, they saw terrible things. People abused and assaulted, as so often migrants are on their journey to the U.S. But what choice did they have? They had a dying son, and they would do anything to save his life. Paul reminds the Corinthians that suffering is a reality of our wounded and broken world. We cannot simply bypass it. We cannot avoid it. And we must become a people, the church, who can discern the ways our culture tells us untrue things about suffering. We must live in the story of the church and scripture. Next, we'll talk about the response to suffering. If we accept the Christian story that suffering is universal, we ought to next ask, how do we live in light of this? Do we become fatalistic, believing that hardship and tragedy are always hovering above us and there's nothing we can do? Do we attempt to further insulate ourselves from risk and relationships that might bring suffering into our lives? As for all questions about how to be God's people in the world, we must look to Jesus. We have to look to Jesus, church. Because Jesus was both fully God and fully man, we are able to see in him what true humanness looks like. Jesus' relationship with the Father and Spirit, with other people in the world, were not broken. He never became a slave to spiritual powers opposed to God. And he was able to be the obedient man God wanted him to be in the world. When we say we want to be like Jesus, and we should say that, we mean just as Jesus fully loved God, fully loved other people, fully loved the world around him, and was obedient to the Father's will, we want to be people of love and obedience too, don't we? Paul reminds the church of the way Jesus lived in our world full of suffering. He says, we share abundantly in the sufferings of Christ. He is reminding the church of the life of Jesus, the story of Jesus, and Jesus' decision to become so vulnerable to the suffering of the world that he was crucified. On Good Friday this year, our church organized a a service um, where we prayed through the stations of the cross. Maybe some of you are familiar with that pathway. It's an ancient pathway in the church. It invites participants to walk through installations of art um, and to see Jesus' betrayal, suffering, and death, the day of his passion. As we walk through these images, we recount what Jesus has done for us. We recount his choice to suffer with us. As we silently walked through the installation in a church member's backyard, we saw these portrayals of Jesus' trial before Pilate, his beating, and his falling along the way to Golgotha. And at one point, I came to a painting of Jesus stripped naked. That's the image. Nikki and I were able to find it last night. I saw Jesus in the foreground, but he looks away from us. He's naked, and he's covering his most intimate parts, The shame on him is palpable. His eyes are turned away from anyone who would look on him in this shame. On the opposite side of the painting, there's a man and a woman. They look at Jesus. They're horrified by him. They're horrified by his shame and his pain. By his nakedness. And this just deepens this sense of his isolation and alienation. naked, humiliated, alone. This is our king. This is our God. As I looked at Jesus in this painting, I found a deep repentance rising up in my soul. I am so sorry. I am so sorry, I whispered. I am so sorry for believing that you don't love me, Jesus. You love me enough to suffer with me. I've heard and told the story of Jesus' passion many times. But each time I somehow glide through his suffering and humiliation, his death. Somehow I came to believe that the experiences of Jesus um, on the cross and leading to the cross were insignificant. I actually thought that Jesus was some kind of Superman above our human suffering. So I imagine him carrying his cross, but it's not that heavy. I imagine him being stripped naked, but he's able to keep his dignity intact. I imagine him being pinned to a tree, but it's okay because he knew everything would work out eventually. This is not the story of Jesus. The Christian response to suffering is not a brilliant philosophical answer. And it's not the promise that if we follow Jesus, he will take suffering out of our lives. It is not the ability to avoid suffering because we get to focus on heavenly things. Instead, the Christian response to suffering is that God himself would come in Jesus and die with us. The Christian response to suffering is that Jesus, our God, dies with us. The creator God does not defend himself from our accusations. You've probably said them. I know I have. God, you don't care about us. You don't care about our world. If you did, why would it look this way? He doesn't defend himself from those accusations that he doesn't love us. Instead, he comes and he suffers the most violent and terrible death. He suffers our injustice and evil at our hands. And so in Jesus, once and for all, we see that God is not a distant, impersonal God. He is not a rule maker for us. He doesn't stand over us ready to strike us. He doesn't hate us. He comes close enough to us to suffer our pain, close enough to us for us to kill him. Every story we have as a people ends in death. When we sin against people and ruin the relationship, it dies. We abuse God's creation and it can no longer sustain us. The same seems true for Jesus, doesn't it? He came showing us what God was really like, showing us the way to the Father, love and embrace, sacrificial love, and we killed him. We assume the story ends here because it seems that the love of God really wasn't strong enough to overcome our violence. We assume Jesus was naive, maybe foolish. But on the third day after Jesus's death, something happens that undoes everything we've ever known. Death does not end the story. Jesus is raised to life by the father. All the evil powers of our world, all our violence and hate and sin and death. Jesus takes these upon himself and they kill him. But the father raises him to life. Evil and suffering do their worst to God, but in doing their worst, they are defeated. This is the reality we live in as the church. Death no longer ends the story. And not only does Jesus die to the power of sin and death, but we as the church, we die with him. Paul says that we share abundantly in the sufferings of Christ. This is what he's talking about, that we enter into death with Jesus. And as we share in this death with him, we also share in his life. For just as we share abundantly in the sufferings of Christ, so too do we share abundantly in his life. And now we return to Paul's words of praise to discuss how we might share the suffering of others in light of how Jesus has suffered with us. Paul says, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Praise be to that God. The father of compassion and the God of all comfort who comforts us in all of our troubles so that we can comfort anyone in their troubles with the same comfort we've received. Paul's praise of God is not only because God has done something good for the church, although that's certainly true. But now the church that has received richly the resurrection of God, the comfort of God. Now we get to share that resurrection and comfort with others who are suffering we can offer the comfort of God to our brothers and sisters in the world. As we've seen, to suffer with anybody, uh, to suffer with another person, it's just deeply challenging, isn't it? And it's not the story of our culture. We're taught in so many ways to hide ourselves from suffering. We're taught in so many ways to ignore suffering, to insulate ourselves. Yet in Jesus, we find God's vision for true humanness. In Jesus, we find God engaging suffering we follow jesus in entering into the lives of people in pain and in a suffering world we see jesus becoming vulnerable enough uh, for their pain to affect him yes this means a sort of death if we're going to follow jesus in this way to walk with others through pain as you know and i know this church actually does this quite well because nikki and i were some of those people in pain And you walked with us. It takes time. It takes energy. You have to be willing to cry with someone. You have to be willing to share your life with someone. That costs something. That's a sort of death, isn't it? To walk with others through suffering is hard. But through Jesus, we also know that anywhere we share in his suffering, we will also share in his comfort. Anywhere we share in his death, we will surely share in his resurrection. And today... I want to get really practical with you all. I want to talk with you about one of the deep sufferings of our country, one of the sufferings that we ignore and pretend isn't there. I want to talk about racism. Racism is an unpopular topic for us to discuss, isn't it? And I know that is why we must talk about it today in the church. Because if there is anywhere we can engage with the painful realities of our world, If there's anywhere we can engage with the suffering of others, it has to be among the people of God who have been baptized into his death and into his resurrection. Furthermore, Nikki and I really can't talk about our neighborhood in South L.A. We can't tell you the story of our neighborhood and what God is doing there without talking about racism. Jesus calls us to go into the suffering places of our world with his comfort. So we need to talk about this today. You can actually go back a slide still. Thank you. Our neighborhood's history is indelibly marked by racism. In the early 1900s, South Los Angeles was actually a vibrant mixed-income community. Asians, blacks, Latinos, and whites lived together in South L.A. And actually at the time, about 1910 or so, L.A. had the highest rate of homeownership for blacks and Latinos in the whole country. Because of this... um, a lot of blacks started migrating from the South to Los Angeles. They were hoping to make a better life for their families. Um, You know, in the antebellum South, Jim Crow laws, segregation, overt violence and racism had made life so hard. And so a lot of the black community migrated to L.A. And many of them migrated right to our neighborhood. But by the 1920s, the government of Los Angeles, which was a government led by the white community, enacted housing laws. These housing laws are sometimes called redlining. And what they did is when someone signed a grant, or a deed rather, to their house, there was a clause in it that overtly said, I will never sell this house to someone of another racial category. These laws prevented white people from ever selling their homes to someone of another race. And in a short period of time, they completely segregated the city. And they formed our neighborhood, South Los Angeles, into a ghetto that people of color could not leave because you couldn't buy a home somewhere else. You were effectively locked in South Los Angeles. Now, many people came to L.A. because there were also middle-income jobs, and especially during World War II, manufacturing jobs boomed. But after World War II, many of these middle-class manufacturing jobs disappeared, and so joblessness began to grow in our neighborhood. Over the years, unemployment, poor schools, and brutal policing by the LAPD and just created this sense of hopelessness in our neighborhood. And in 1965 and 1992, events sparked this hopelessness. Uh, There was social unrest, looting, fires. These things are collectively called the Watts Riots and the L.A. Riots. But as Nikki said, uh, we prefer to call the L.A. Riots the social earthquake. We think it's more indicative of what actually happened. After these events, essentially all of the white community as well as most of the middle-class black community left the neighborhood. Instead of recognizing that segregation and racial injustice were actually the root of all of all of our neighborhood's problems, everyone who could leave escaped. They wanted to avoid suffering. They wanted to bypass suffering. They didn't want to do the hard work of racial reconciliation, of learning to love their neighbors. Now, because of the legacy of slavery and racism in our country, Keep in mind here, in 1960, 100 years ago, every one of my black neighbors, in 1960, their family were still enslaved in this country, essentially. So because of this legacy of slavery and racism, it was the white community that largely possessed resources like education, businesses, and loans in our neighborhood. When these upwardly mobile residents of our community left, they took many opportunities with them. And then other areas in Los Angeles desegregated, allowing the middle-class black community to also leave, further cutting off people from the opportunities for economic dignity and flourishing. This year, uh, it's become more personal, obviously, as we're living in the neighborhood. Um, The first person we actually met on our street is a man I'll call Mr. James. Um, We pulled onto our street to start unloading our car, and he said, don't park there, you're going to get a parking ticket. So uh, right from the get-go, he was looking out for us. Mr. James uh, was born and raised in Mississippi. He's an older adult. He's black, and he's the son of sharecroppers. For over 30 years, he's lived on our street. And in that time, two of his sons have been lost. One of his sons was gunned down just a few blocks south on a street called Exposition. He was killed in gang violence. And the other son was killed by medical complications. The tragedies of Mr. James's life, the loss of his sons, are not isolated incidents. These are realities for communities of color, realities for my neighbors. Communities of color in our country are more marginalized, more poor, and they suffer lower levels of health and higher rates of violence from both their neighbors and the police. They create suffering that is exorbitant when compared to wealthier communities. You can go on to the next slide. It's a little hard to read. I want to read you a few statistics about my neighborhood. There is only half a job per worker in my neighborhood as compared to over one job per worker in the rest of L.A. County. So criticisms of people really need to get jobs don't really make sense when there are no jobs. There are only six grocery stores to serve nearly 700,000 people in our neighborhood. In West L.A., there are 19 stores to serve 400,000 people. So our neighbors are cut off from healthy food. This is how we have these really high rates of diabetes. It's twice the average of the rest of the city, obesity and other health issues. 36% of residents in our neighborhood own their homes, compared to 68% in North Los Angeles. People in our neighborhood don't have equity. They don't have a nest egg. South LA only has one hospital bed per 1,000 residents. West LA has over four. Over four times the amount of medical resources and about half the population. Some areas of South LA with heavy gang activity have poverty rates exceeding 80%. Every single person you know is poor, intractably poor, and cannot be unpoor. Imagine that for a second. But, you know, it's not just South Los Angeles that bears these wounds of racism and injustice. As we prayed earlier, on Wednesday in Charleston, South Carolina, A white man named Dylan Roof walked into a manual African Methodist Episcopal Church during a Bible study. He killed nine of our brothers and sisters. They were studying scripture and praying when they were shot to death. I know we might say, well, that man was mentally ill or demonized, and that might well be true. But he was a child once, too. He was raised in a family, raised in a community, raised in a culture. He was formed and shaped by people. And then one day he killed nine of our black brothers and sisters. So my question is, who did we form Dylan Roof to be? Racism obviously goes a lot beyond black and white. Anybody can be racist and anybody and every different ethnic group has experienced racism. But I think we're at a time right now in our country, and I have the opportunity to speak to you today, that I really want to focus on the experience of the black community. Because I think we're at a time when the church needs to respond. I think we're at a time when we, who are baptized into the death and resurrection of Jesus, we need to respond. And so we're going to talk about that some. In early April, also in South Carolina, a white police officer named Michael Slager pulled over a man named Michael Scott, who was black. There was a tussle, and then Mr. Scott, the African-American man, he began to run from the officer. And this is all captured on video, taken by a bystander. I imagine some of you have seen it. When Michael Scott, or excuse me, when Mr. Scott is 20 feet from the officer, he is shot in the back multiple times. The police officer then called in on his radio and said, uh, a "Suspect has been shot. He took my taser." What's really troubling to me is that had there been no video evidence capturing this murder, we really wouldn't have noticed, would we? We would have absolutely believed that that white police, police officer had good reason to kill that black man that he must have been dangerous, that he must have been lawless. We would have trusted the word of the white, white police officer over the word of the black man, and that is racism. That is injustice. Officer Slager is being charged with murder by the state of South Carolina, and Michael Scott is dead. Two weeks ago, a lot closer to home, just in McKinney, Texas, which is just north of Dallas, um, police officers were called to a community pool. The officers who responded were white. There was an end-of-the-year pool party, and a group of black and white youth were present. I remember going to these. You know, you're 14 or 15, and somebody's family has a pool membership, so you all show up to crash the party. When the white officer arrived, uh, he immediately began yelling for the black young men to sit down. Sit down. Get down. But he skips past the white youth and a white man actually walking through the area. He doesn't give them any instructions. In fact, the whole situation is recorded on the cell phone camera of a a young white boy, a white teen. The officer then gets into an altercation with a 15-year-old black girl. He forces her down to the ground while she cries and says she's going to call her mom. I'm going to call my mom. I'm going to call my mom, she says, which is what a child yells when she's scared. Several black teenage boys run over when the officer pins down the girl and then the white officer draws his gun at the group of completely unarmed black teenage boys. This violence and injustice that the black community is facing in our country matters to Jesus. He died on the cross to overcome racism and evil and hate. The very things we see across our country today. He has been raised to life so that those who have been sinned against can live anew. Some of you probably saw the news story that the families of of those brothers and sisters of ours in Charleston who were murdered, the families just immediately poured out forgiveness on Dylan, didn't they? One family member said this. They said, We forgive you. We won't ever get to hold her again, but we forgive you. Because of the power of Jesus... They were able to say that because of the resurrection of Jesus, they were able to say that. And because of the power of Jesus' resurrection, even the most violent and hateful people are forgiven. And they're welcomed into the forgiveness of God so that they might be transformed. This is where the gospel of Jesus collides with our world. Where all of of our talk here as a church has to come to action. Because Jesus is in these hurting places And we cannot avoid them because they're uncomfortable or hard. If we avoid the suffering of our black brothers and sisters at this time in our country, we are not being obedient to Jesus. We are not being obedient to Jesus if we do that. We are choosing self-preservation over love. We're choosing to preserve the way that we think about our country, the way we think about our experiences. We're choosing to preserve our own sense of safety over love. But I have a question for you, Vineyard Church of San Antonio. What would it look like for you, Vineyard Church of San Antonio, or maybe you're visiting. If you're a Christian, you're still the church. What would it look like for you to call up black churches in San Antonio and say, I am so sorry for your loss. I am so sorry for our brothers and sisters that were murdered in Charleston. I am so sorry for all of the officer-involved shootings of black men. I am so sorry, and I am praying for you. I am praying for you. What would it look like, Vineyard Church of San Antonio, to worship with a black church in our city, to pray with them, to study the word with them, to take communion with them? Perhaps in time you might be trusted and honored enough to hear the stories of our brothers and sisters, to be taught by them how the suffering and comfort of Christ has poured into their lives, that it might pour into your life as well. So we pray again, come, Lord Jesus, come. May your will be done in San Antonio as it is in heaven. I want to invite the worship team up um, to minister to us. And our folks that are in prayer ministry can go to the side of the room. I think that's how we still do it. In the the front. So we'll have folks in prayer ministry at the front here. And I want to invite us to a few different responses. You can go to the next slide. Some of you have just heard the story of God's great love for you. You've heard how gladly he chose suffering for you, how God did not stay far off indifferent to you because God loves you. So he came in Jesus and he died with you and for you and instead of you. And you can enter into that death so that you can share in his life. Some of you have heard how gladly God wants to be in a relationship with you today. And if you would like to enter God's family today, I just encourage you to come forward and to speak with one of our prayer ministers. They would be happy to pray with you about that. Perhaps some of you know an area of your life where you've avoided God's invitation because there's going to be some suffering there. You think there will be at least, and there might well be. You need some courage today. You need some courage to step into that suffering, some courage to know that just as the suffering of Christ comes into your life, so too does his comfort. So too does his resurrection. Come and receive prayer for that. And some of you today feel like Jesus is calling you to take a risk. You feel like he's calling you to cross a barrier of culture or race or class so that you can suffer with others and share the comfort God has given you. That is a hard process. Let me just tell you, I don't expect one message to do this. I don't expect one Sunday to do this. This is a process. It's a process of coming into relationship with people different than ourselves cross racial and cultural lines and asking them teach me teach me show me but but if you feel like that's what god is calling you to today i'd like you to stand and i'm going to pray for you because that is a hard call that's challenging and i I just want to bless you in that so if you feel like that's something god has called you to to cross racial and cultural lines I'm, i'm going to just pray for you all i'm going to bless you in that thank you lord thank you lord for your work here Thank you, Lord. Father, thank you that you are a God of all comfort, a God of all compassion. Thank you that you look at your church and you love us. You look at your world and you love us. God, you see these people here today, the ones that feel your spirit calling them to be ministers of reconciliation, people that don't just receive your comfort, but people who receive your comfort to pour it into the lives of others. Oh, God, would you pour out your comfort into the lives of these people that they might pour it out into the lives of others? Oh, God, would you give them humility and boldness to form relationships with people far different than themselves, to ask the question, what is your life like? What is your experience like? Teach me. Lord God, may your church become a place where black and white and brown, where all people gather together. Take your body, take your blood, and celebrate together, because in your cross, in your death, we're reconciled. We praise you, Jesus, and we pray this all in your name. Amen. Please come forward for prayer if you'd like.